Please open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This will not be the text I will be preaching from, but it forms a fitting introduction to our consideration of the work of grace done in the heart of the prodigal son. Actually, I'm going to back up and begin reading at verse 14 of the previous chapter. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, down to verse 9 of chapter 7. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves innocent in this matter. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in this hour with distractions behind us, concerns ahead of us. How easy it is for us to be turned away from the needs of the hour, that we might, that we might have the grace of God opening our eyes to see the kingdom of God. For those who are outside of Christ, even in this hour, to be granted repentance, that for them the day of salvation would come coming here without Christ, leaving with him, coming a stranger and leaving a friend of Christ. We pray that you would work repentance in the hearts of those who are without hope and without God in this world, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, that you would open their eyes to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. You'd give them the feet of faith and repentance to run to him. And for those who are your own, 
Lord, we are distracted by many things as well. Let us not merely pile into this place, plunk ourselves down in these pews and go through ritualistic worship. We need your help to, to turn our attention from the things of this world to the things of heaven, from the things of time to the things of eternity, from those things which would easily distract us to those very things that demand our attention. So, Lord, be with us in this hour. Give help to the preacher. Give help to all of us as hearers that we will be able to say when we leave this place this day, it has been good to be here because you have been here. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. considering the parable of the prodigal son. And this parable has much to say to each one of us because each one of us is born into this world as a prodigal. We've been running from God as fast as our feet will take us until God arrests us in our tracks and brings us to Jesus Christ. We've seen the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. The last couple of weeks, we've been considering the parable of the lost son. We've, conce- we've seen his determinative decision in verses 11 through 13, that it arose from his wandering heart, that it led to estrangement from his father. Last time, we saw his licentious lifestyle his degenerate behavior, and his destitute condition. This morning we come to ponder his revolutionary repentance. Please follow with me as I read verses 11 through the beginning of verse 20. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. May God add his own blessing upon the reading and preaching of the word. 
experience teaches us that words have consequences. And foolish words may portend fearful consequences. Little did the younger son know that when he uttered his foolish request, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, what the outcome of these words would be. To borrow from Solomon's dictum, they would lead him to a life of wicked madness. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 13. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. In Jesus' parable, we behold God's hidden hand bringing a foolish son to the end of himself and then to salvation. You see, the Lord was teaching this foolish young man that a life of sin never satisfies. It always disappoints. It always troubles us. It always causes us pain. It never fills the aching void in our soul that must be occupied by God and by God alone. And so God orchestrates dreadful events to bring him to see his folly, to bring him to his senses, and to bring him to his father. He casts him into the pit dug by his own sin so that he has nowhere else to look but up. Jesus teaches that God will use whatever means he deems best to bring an elect sinner to repentance and to himself. In this parable, Jesus outlines the four phases in which God brings an elect sinner to repentance and salvation. First, we behold his descent into sin in verses 11 through 13. Secondly, his misery in his sin, verses 14 through 16. Thirdly, his repentance from a life of sin, verses 17 through the beginning of verse 20, which we're considering this morning and next week his restoration to his Father and to his God in verses 20b through 24. So let us ponder the repentance of this young man from a life of sin, this turning of heart and turning of feet and turning of life away from sin unto righteousness, unto God, unto his Father. So having considered his determinative decision that got him into trouble, his licentious lifestyle in diving headlong into sin, let us now explore his revolutionary repentance. And I use this word revolutionary guardedly, but I think it's a, it's a good adjective for his repentance. Revolutionary means markedly new or introducing fundamental change. And that's exactly what happened in the life of this young man. This young man demonstrates the revolutionary life-changing effect of repentance. In fact, his father would regard this revolutionary change in his son as nothing less than life from the dead. Well, the returning prodigal presents a living example of repentance as defined by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 87 What is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ 
doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That is a very succinct, well-crafted definition of repentance. Let's look at it in this young man's life. So notice with me three things about his revolutionary repentance. First of all, he comes to his senses. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses... You see, he had left his senses. He left his senses at home, quite frankly. But when he came to his senses, he said, and he begins to think, now he's thinking rationally, he's thinking realistically, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, and, but I am dying here with hunger. I put myself in this dreadful condition, and now I look back, and the guys living in my dad's bunkhouse, they're eating better than I'm eating right now. You see, sin is wicked madness. Repentance, then, is a restoration to moral sanity. In repentance, we come to our senses, and in coming to our senses, we abandon our folly and we turn to God. We are running... From him, now we're running toward him. Repentance, then, always involves a voluntary, conscious, deliberate turning from sin to the Lord. This repentance marked the Thessalonian Christians. Steeped in pagan wickedness, Paul tells us that through the ministry of the word, they turned from God, or excuse me, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turn to God and away from their idols to serve the living and true God. You see, this young man was not in his right mind when he left his father's house. Now he's coming to understand his folly. Before he was beside himself. We talk about people that are just beside themselves. Well, he was beside himself, and now he has come to himself. And we learn a lesson here. We must first return to our senses before we will return to God. And until then, we are beside ourselves. We're not in our right mind. When this young man comes to himself, he's found of God. We know this because he now sees his folly in its true colors. He sees his rebellion as wicked madness. And now with new eyes, he beholds the destructive impact of his sin, and he feels the pain of his sin. God in his mercy restores the young man's sanity. No longer does sin possess its magnetic charm as it had when he departed his father's house to journey into Vanity Fair. So he resolves, or he comes to his senses. Secondly, he resolves to leave his sin and return home confessing his sin. Verses 18 and 19. I will get up 
and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. True conviction of sin always involves a deliberate decision to leave our sin and to return to God. The young man realized that his father's hired hands had it better than he now did. So he laments his folly of abandoning the place of blessing to live in squalor with pigs. Indeed, he had deserted his privileged place as a son, and now he longs to feed on the crumbs that would fall from his father's generous table. I will go back to my father. I will go hat in hand, and I will see what he is willing to give to me. So notice then, he resolves to leave his sin. I will get up. He'd wallowed in his sin like a pig in the mire, but no longer. You see, he's turning his back now upon his sin and his former lifestyle of rebellion against God and against his father. You see, this young man didn't simply leave his father's home. He didn't merely abandon his father's rules. He forsook his father himself. And now he lights out for home. A true penitent decides that he will no longer continue in his sin. So he resolves to leave his sin. He resolves next to return to his father. And I will go to my father. You see, this impetuous lad had stars in his eyes when he foolishly left home. And now he wisely decides to return. Pride had turned him from his father. Humility will now return him to his father. You may be sure that his carnal friends didn't encourage him to return home. If they were still hanging around him at all, now that his bankroll had run out, now his friends have run off. If they knew about his plan to return home, they likely would have mocked him. You'd be a fool to return home. You really think that the old man will receive you? You've ruined any chance of being welcomed by your father. See, carnal friends never would have encouraged his repentance and return home. Why? Because misery loves company. Stick around here. You'd be a fool to go back home. There was a reason why you left. Maybe you just forgot. Stay with us. And so they would have mocked his repentance. You see, he was coming to his senses. He knew that he had no good reason to leave his father. His hope of being received rises no higher than he might be put to work as a common servant. This prodigal had by his wicked life forfeited his privileged place at home. He wasted his father's estate. He had sullied his father's name. He had trampled his father's love. This young man believes that by his sin, he had carved a grand canyon-like crevasse between himself and his father's love that could never be bridged by a return. But yet he's going to go home. 
But yet I suggest that even in his brokenness, a glimmer of hope flickered in his heart. He could never forget his father's gracious character and his own kind treatment of him. Could it be that a flickering love yet burned in his father's heart toward him? Thirdly, he resolves to confess his sin. When this young man comes to his senses in repentance, he resolved to openly, transparently, and humbly confess his sin to his father. He's going to hold back nothing. You know, he might have pondered what he was going to say. Because it seems here that he practiced what he was going to say to his father. But of this we may be sure he would find no peace of mind until he unburdened his soul in confession to his father, even as he had already to God. So, what does he resolve to confess? Well, first of all, he determines to confess himself a sinner against God. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Not just against myself. Not just against these carnal cronies of mine. And not just against you. My sin has ultimately been against heaven. It's been against God. So he's not going to blame his father. He's not going to blame his father's rules or his self-righteous brother's unkindness for driving him out of the home and into sin. He's not going to point his finger at his carnal cronies in the far country for tempting him to sin. He's not going to blame his heartless employer in the far country for almost starving him to death. You see, the buck stops with him. In fact, we never really think rationally until we repent of our sins. We're never, we're never honest with anyone until we're honest with ourselves and honest with our sin. He's not even going to blame the evil one, say the devil made me do it. No, he's taking personal responsibility and accountability for his sins. And neither would he decriminalize his loose living by calling it sexual addiction. Or try to spin his squandering of his inheritance as just a series of bad investments. No, he would openly confess his sin against the fifth and the seventh commandments and any other commands that he had plainly broken. He's being honest with himself. He's going to be honest with God in the presence of his father. He'd be like David who openly confessed his sins of adultery and murder that they were directed ultimately against God himself. Yes, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband to try to cover it up. But what did he say? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. You see, he would shamefacedly accuse himself without an iota of excuse. Secondly, he determines to confess himself a sinner against his father. I say, young people, you've never really confessed your sin to God truly until you've confessed your sin to your parents if you've sinned against them. 
And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You see, one who truly confesses his sin will not attempt to justify himself before men. He will seek the pardon of those against whom he has sinned. And this son had grievously trampled the fifth commandment. He rebelled against his father's just authority. He'd broken every one of his father's righteous rules, both in his heart at home and then in his profligate life in the far country. He drugged the family's good name through the mud and fouled it with the odor of the pigsty. This young man lamented his camaraderie with his carnal cronies. He was deeply humiliated and humbled over his sin. You see, God had broken him. A true penitent brokenheartedly confesses his sin and he seeks pardon from those that he is harmed by his sin. And notice again that this young man would not try to justify himself before his father with the old excuse. You know, Dad, I'm back home now. But you know, after all, boys will be boys. You know that I just needed to get out and sow a few wild oats before settling down. Surely you understand that. I would have none of that. This young man left home full of himself, and he's going to return home full of remorse. The prodigal may at first have been harassed by nagging doubts and questions. What if my father will not receive me? What if news of my sinful escapades has turned him forever away from me? What if he punishes me as my sins truly deserve? What if? What if? What if? So the most he could have hoped for at this point, that his God would, or that his father would at least admit him back into the bunkhouse with his hired hands. It has been suggested that the prodigal's unwillingness to expect full restoration to his father's favor, but instead to be put to work, indicate that, indicates that the boy had a legal spirit. I don't think so. Here's why. Nagging doubts and questions may plague the heart of a true penitent. You see, to be received into favor again by a father against he had so grievously sins, if his father would receive him, it, this just seems too good to be true. I can't believe it if it would happen. Yet his planned confession reveals a hint of hope by calling him father. The prodigal seems to have held out hope that his father just might receive him as his long-lost son. This reveals genuine gospel repentance. His planned confession indicates out of his true sense of sin that he apprehended the mercy of God in Christ. 
And you know, when he goes home, he's going to find out that his pardon is more abundant than he could have hoped and that his father's grace is greater than all of his sin. So this young man, man's confidence in his father's mercy overrides his crippling doubts. His hope is not brazen presumption, but the work of saving faith as we will see next time. And he puts one foot in front of the other from the far country headed for home. So notice thirdly, he returns to his father and he got up and came to his father. You see, true repentance doesn't end with resolution, but it leads to action. It doesn't reside only in the mind. It moves the feet. I'll get up and go to my father. And he got up and came to his father. You see, a change in our heart changes our life. A changed heart determined so far as possible to right all wrongs and to return to those that we've harmed and to return to God in newfound obedience. The old catechism reflects this truth. The repenting sinner will, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. He's going to return to the pathway of obedience that he left when he crossed the threshold of his father's home for the far country. So he's no longer going to stay in the far country. Before he chose to obey his lust, now he chooses to obey God and his father. He's no longer going to stay in the far country, he gets up and he goes. It's interesting, Jesus tells us that the prodigal got up. Got up. What does this mean? Well, it may well mean that he got up because he had been driven to his knees, confessing his sin, and he had a comfortable sense of acceptance with God through the Savior, and now he's going to go back home to his father. So if he was on his knees, he rises, knowing that there's a rainbow over the throne, and there's a pardoning God seated upon it. So now he arises, he's no longer beside himself, now he is clothed with his right mind. Before he followed the suggestions of his wicked heart and the counsel of his ungodly friends. And now he believes the promises of scripture and obeys the promptings of the spirit and he returns home to his father. Well, next time, God willing, when I'm in the pulpit, we'll ponder the penitent prodigal's homecoming. Recently, we celebrated Father's Day. And we will witness a very special Father's Day Day, a picture of heaven's celebration over every penitent sinner next time. But until then, let us consider some concluding lessons and applications.
First of all, lessons from the prodigal on repentance. Notice four. If we are truly penitent, we will be ashamed of ourselves for our sin. We won't just dust it off. No, we will be truly ashamed of ourselves for our sin. You see, if we feel no shame for our sin, we must question whether we've been pardoned from our sin. Penitence brings pain as we ponder the wickedness and the evil effects of our sin. Not just the evil effects of our sin, being in the pigsty, but that evil in our hearts that drew us out of the home and drove us into the far country. So if we are ashamed of our sin, first of all, we will turn from it in humiliation and self-reproach. Consider the words of Jeremiah, verse 31 and verse 19. For after I turned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. I'm humiliated because of my sin. I'm just not going to have a boys will be boys attitude. I'm not going to take the world's view of sin. I, you know, not no big deal. Everybody does it. You see, it is the hypocrite who argues from the greatness of God's grace to light views of his sin. Read David's confession in Psalm 51 of his deep contrition over his sin. Secondly, if we're ashamed of ourselves for our sin, we will lament the losses we experience by our sin. Romans 6 and verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving, think of the boy in the far country, from the things of which you are now ashamed, and properly so. Paul doesn't say don't be ashamed. He says it's right for you to be ashamed. For the outcome of those things is death. You continue down that road, you're going to die in your sin. That should make the hair stand up on the back of our necks when we consider the trajectory of our lives in sin. The prodigal learned the hard way way what his father knew all along. That sin destroys and kills His father speaks of his repentant son, as I said before, as being now alive from the dead. This boy is realizing that he was once dead in trespasses and sins. Thirdly, if we are ashamed ashamed of ourselves for our sin, we will repudiate the sins we once gloried in. We didn't just do it, we loved it. We want other people to love it too. We want them to love us in it. Paul speaks in Philippians 3 and verse 19 of such people in his day, and certainly in our own, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. They have a belly God. They live to serve their lusts. Notice, and whose glory is their shame. They glory in the very things they should be ashamed of. Who set their mind on earthly things. If we are repentant, gone is self-glorying. 
Gone is self-promotion. Gone is self-justification. In its place is only humiliation and brokenness. In its place is the justification of God and the hatred of sin and a detestation of it and its foul odor. God will give us nostrils, as it were, to smell our own sin and a heart to hate it. Secondly, if we're truly penitent, we will display distinguishing marks of repentance. We saw this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He speaks of the Corinthians' repentance. For behold, what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you. You weren't just ho-hum. No, you, you demonstrated that you were changed men and women. You were earnest. This godly sorrow, what did it produce? What vindication of yourselves. You made things right. What indignation over your sin. You said, how could I have done this? What fear maybe of of dying in their sin. What fear of God? What longing to do what is right? What zeal to run in the pathway of obedience? What avenging of wrong and trying to right everything that they've done wrong? You see, the prodigal son didn't simply feel bad about his sin. That's the sorrow of the world, which works death. People can feel sorry for themselves because of the impact of their sin and how it's wrecked their lives, but that's not true repentance because there's no Godward direction in it. Nor did he merely plan to return to his father and confess his sin. Well, maybe someday I'll do it. No, he immediately and resolutely got up and he went to his father confessing his sin. Dear people, beware. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, and many walk on it. They never get to their good intentions, but they get to hell. Thirdly, if we are truly penitent, we will be motivated by God's promises to live a holy life in his fear. We saw this in in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 through 7, 1. I'll read verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, God promises to welcome all repentant sinners as his sons and daughters. And we show that we are members of his family by turning from and having nothing to do with the wicked ways of this world. The hymn writer, this vile world is no friend to grace to help us on to God. Young people, and you who seem to be so enamored with the world and with the world's opinions and to be accepted by your ungodly peers, take a lesson from this young man. He learned the hard way not to make friends, close friends, with the people of this wicked world. They did him no good. They only did him harm. We sing in that hymn, Faithless friends to charm thee who but seek to harm thee. 
Fourthly, if we are truly repentant, we will bear visible fruits of repentance. John the Baptist said, therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. When Jesus first preached, he preached repentance. Fruit will be evident in our lives if we're truly repentant, because this is revolutionary, you see. Repentance revolutionized this young man's life. It radically changed his attitudes as well as his actions. It changed his attitude toward authority, especially the authority of his father. Young lady was baptized in a former church of ours. And she was being questioned by the elders as to how she knew that she was truly a Christian and that she had really repented. And she said, I knew that God had done a work in my heart when I quit rebelling to my parents and lying to them and being sneaky behind their back. I saw this as evil. And her life changed. It changed his attitude towards sin. That sin must not now be pandered, but mortified, put to death. Right eyes gouged out and thrown away. Right arms, hands cut off and thrown far from us. Not gouged out and then put back in our pockets. Get away from those things. It also changed his attitude toward work. That you know, dad, after all, wasn't a harsh taskmaster. I found out what a harsh taskmaster is like in the far country. And I found out what a harsh taskmaster is like in my own heart. It changed his attitude toward his peers and his friends that he knew they did him no good. It changed his attitude toward himself before he was beside himself. Now he's in his right mind that he belonged to God and he didn't belong to himself. It especially changed his attitude toward God, that God is just and he is gracious and he is full of long-suffering, slow to anger, full of tender mercies. So those are lessons from the prodigal on repentance, but I have a closing word. I have an invitation to prodigals this morning. God will save you if you truly confess your sin. He will save you. He will deliver you from the guilt of your sin. He'll deliver you from the power of your sin. He will deliver you from the just desert of your sin because of what he's done in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly holy life on behalf of perfectly unholy sinners like you and me. He not only lived a perfectly holy life by obeying all the precepts of the law, that he stepped in the place of sinners and endured the wrath of God that is justly due them so that they might be set free, so that they might have his righteousness. He endured the penalty that was due them under the outpoured wrath of God for an eternity 
worth of hellfire on behalf of everyone for whom he died. That is everyone who comes to him in faith. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, after giving that whole litany of sins that characterized the Corinthians before they were cleansed and sanctified and justified, notice what Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You're not what you once were, what you are now, you are by the grace of God. All things have passed away. New things have come. You're on a different course now. You were once on the wide road that leads to damnation and eternal death. And now you're on the narrow road that leads to life. And God, by his grace, has made you to differ. This prodigal descended deeply into sin but not so deeply that he could not be rescued by the long arm of God's saving grace. May God bring you to your senses that you might turn from your sin to him. But let me ask you, are you afraid as you look at your sins that Jesus won't receive you? That maybe you've just gone too far, you've sinned too many times? What did Jesus say? The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And remember this parable. It was spoken in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. He reaches down and he plucks those that are brands for the burning. He makes them trophies of his grace. You can't run so far from God that he can't rescue you and make you a trophy of his grace. We sang these words earlier. Take me, oh my father, take me. Take me, save me through thy son. That which thou wouldst have me, make me. Let thy will in me be done. Long from thee my footsteps straying. Thorny prove the way I trod. Weary come I now in praying. Take me to thy love, my God. Fruitless years with grief recalling, humbly I confess my sin. At thy feet, O Father, falling to thy household, take me in. Freely now to thee I proffer this relenting heart of mine. Freely life and soul I offer, gift unworthy love like thine. May you be able to say that even this morning. You've been beside yourself. May God bring you to your senses and bring you to to his son, saving you from your sin and promising you eternal glory with your Savior forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we we are the prodigal. We are either the resistant prodigal running from you or we are the penitent prodigal being brought back to you by your grace, restored by Jesus Christ, indwelt by his spirit. So Lord, what we have to ask ourselves, what kind of prodigal am I this morning? Am I running from you? Sticking my fingers in my ears and saying, I want nothing to do with you? Or is my, are my feet turned toward Jesus Christ 
and I'm running toward you and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Oh, Lord, do a mighty and marvelous work. Grant revolutionary repentance in the hearts of any here that are running from you, that they might run to you, no longer destined for and deserving of hell, but now because Jesus has borne their wrath, true children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, have mercy upon us according to our needs this hour. Not only the good would be done to our souls, but that it would all redound to your magnificent, matchless, and glorious name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.